0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for January 2015, volume fifty-three, number one. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. Hello, and I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief. Our first editorial of 2015 looks at the issue of health tourism and focuses on the some of the issues raised by people who seek health care abroad. James, sort of key issues that we raise in this. What's what what are the problems that you Participate seeing as a GP or encounter as a GP?
1: The editorial raises a number of issues, both for patients, that is adults, who decide to go abroad or even to seek health care from agencies outside the NHS or outside the UK. And then, of course, there are the particular issues that occur when a family decide that they want to seek health care for their children outside the UK, because obviously that opens up a whole number of issues around the ethics, the safeguarding issues that might might be represented by those choices. And of course
0: some of the you know, very practical problems relate to when patients return having had a diagnosis and, or treatment advice from overseas and then hope to replicate the treatment at home. So things that may not be available or may be unlicensed in the UK, and what sort of issues does that raise for prescribers? I think this is, this is a particular issue.
1: Obviously, someone might return from abroad with a diagnosis where perhaps the criteria for that diagnosis are different in the country they sought healthcare from than we use in this country. So it may be that actually the threshold is different. They might be using treatments that perhaps are licensed in one country for. Th- this condition but actually aren't licensed in the UK for this condition and that raises obviously uh, major problems with the prescriber having to make clear in their own minds whether this is something they are willing to continue to prescribe or whether they're going to have to seek help and advice from elsewhere.
0: So obviously lots of issues relating to very practical concerns but also difficulties about managing the relationship with the patient and their family about what their expectations are. Well, of course, we we have the,
1: the family uh, from Southampton just recently who sought uh, health care elsewhere and obviously the major issues that arose around that. And I think what we particularly talk about in the editorial is the need for clinicians to make sure they've explored parents' and patients' concerns, make sure they understand what their fears and worries are, and if they have got thoughts that perhaps they should be going elsewhere, being able to actually sit down and have a a good
0: discussion with listening on both sides to the implications of that. And presumably the more that you can explore these issues before the decision to go abroad is made, perhaps the easier the discussion comes when they return home so the expectations are realistic.
1: Well, exactly. And it does, of course, allow that ability for us as the healthcare system in this country
0: to try and liaise and integrate with the systems elsewhere. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, our first main article, it's January. You've decided you've overeaten at Christmas. You're looking at issues about healthy eating and where to go. We thought we'd look at the evidence for some of the dietary interventions that are commonly highlighted as good for your health. So we've looked at evidence for fruit and vegetable intake, evidence around the Mediterranean diet, and also evidence around salt. And the key issues for you? Well, the key
1: issues for me was just what a dearth of evidence there is for these interventions uh of course they are very difficult to do all studies that have tried to look at lifestyle interventions always suffer from the ability to really demonstrate an impact for that intervention and sometimes that's because the non-intervention part of the study starts doing it as well or that actually the people who are meant to be having an intervention active intervention don't simply carry it out or, or stop doing it after a time so we've looked at all the evidence we can find for these three interventions and as I say the problem really is that there's a, a pretty pretty meagre amount of evidence to demonstrate the effectiveness of these interventions. So randomised
0: controlled trials are few and far between. Mm. A lot of it's observational cohort studies or other types of research which have their own own problems. But out of it, you've got to kind of draw some conclusions. Do you think the current advice is reasonable, given that people are saying, you know, five fruit and veg a day, cut down on salt, and aim for a Mediterranean diet? Yes. I mean, I think... There's
1: there's definitely evidence uh, to support all these three interventions. Um, I suppose just for me, I was expecting there to be far more than there really is. So, yes, certainly the more fruit and vegetables that you eat, the more portions. There does seem to be an impact, particularly on cardiovascular disease, but actually benefits with regard to things like cancer and diabetes less so. Uh, Mediterranean diet, one of the problems with Mediterranean diet is that um, no one's really defined it. So one of the problems looking at the studies is that some studies have one definition of it and others have another. So, but there does seem to be evidence for efficacy against that. I mean, we're talking about, for example, if you were managing hypertension, perhaps a two to three millimeter drop in blood pressure in patients who were having the diet compared to those that weren't so it's it's the evidence is there it seems a sensible thing to do but but i think you know if you're sitting quietly at home feeling a bit guilty
0: about the last two
1: or three weeks
0: relax and our second main article reviews JDES, which is a new levonorgestrel containing interuterine contraceptive and this is the second such device to be licensed in the UK. We've had Mirena uh, available for many years, but this is produced by the same manufacturer, um, but is a lower-dose product. Immediate first reflections, James? Yeah.
1: so this is still a T-frame. It's a slightly smaller device, uh, and uh, it contains just 13.5 milligrams of levonorgestrel compared to 52 milligrams you get of levonorgestrel in the Mirena. So it's a smaller intrauterine contraceptive device. It's only licensed for contraception, and it's only licensed uh, for three years at the moment. So that's a big difference from Mirena, exactly. which is five years. Exactly. So why? And you may well ask. And um, it's not entirely clear Why? it's uh, been marketed currently they've done little work on nulliparous women or younger women which are perhaps the two groups of people you might be looking for a smaller device perhaps simpler to insert in the n- nulliparous cervix so um it's certainly efficacious it does uh what it says on the tin but i think we need to watch this space to work out where it'll fit in
0: uh, our current contraceptive armamentarium. So if you're considering it and going through your various criteria, efficacy, it works. Harm's very similar to what yeah. you'd expect from any levonorgestrel-containing contraceptive. Possibly easier to insert and then possibly less painful on insertion than Mirena, so potential benefit for patients. But you would have to replace it after three years. So for one Myrena insertion you'd have two JDES insertions. So weigh up the benefits of less painful insertion with more frequent insertions. And then cost. More expensive, less expensive.
1: Well this is the thing it looks as if it's cheaper uh, about 69 or so pounds uh, per unit compared with 88 pounds per unit for the marina but of course if you work out on a cost per year basis 3 versus 5 actually the marina is uh, still cheaper 17 pounds a year versus about
0: 23 so lots of issues to consider but as we say perhaps question where this fits at the moment in terms of contraceptive practice It's interesting. I mean, the
1: other thing about it being a lower dose is that you get less amenorrhea in women taking it, um, which may or may not be a factor that uh, women are sort of is important to them. But at the moment, it's just it's odd that the Trials that have been done have seemed to not been focused on perhaps the very group of women that you might be considering a smaller device for. So I think I suspect this is that, we you know, watch this space. I'm sure we'll find that there'll be further studies undertaken and the use of this concept of device will change with time.
0: Okay, thank you very much. One item from Select this month. We look at a analysis of data comparing bleeding risk with dabigatrin and warfarin. Obviously the new oral anticoagulants have been much in the news and everyone is kind of watching and seeing how they develop in clinical practice. What did this tell us? So this is a retrospective cohort study
1: based on about about 5% of um, the Medicare beneficiaries in the States. They looked um, at about a year, over a year, and they compared bleeding rates for patients on the NOAC dabigatran uh, versus warfarin. What was interesting was that they found the bleeding rates were higher than they had seen in the trials that were undertaken for the licensing of, of dabigatran.
0: And were these all uh, aspects of bleeding or related to particular...?
1: Yes, so uh, as we've known all along uh, with the studies, the incident of intracranial bleeding was less in the dabigatran group compared to warfarin. Uh, and that was borne out in this this cohort study as well. But bleeding, GI bleeding, major... Uh, bleeding and in fact any course bleeding was higher in the dabigatran group than in the warfarin group and was higher than they had seen in in the previous studies but again it's observational data it so. is observational st- data but it's it's the stuff which um sort of gives us an idea of what life is like in the real world so in that respect it is very informative because obviously the biggest concern we have with all new drugs is that they're tested in research-based world, which is often different from from the real one we all work and live in.
0: So the highly selected population is now brought into real world and therefore a bit more information to add to the story. Exactly. And I think, you know, I think
1: NOACs currently um, are just tentatively being picked up in primary care and we're beginning to get to know them. And I think we're going to be watching the early adopters all around the world very, very carefully to see if there are any Uh, skeletons in cupboards that
0: uh, come out in the next few years Okay, thank you very much To read these and any articles please visit our website dtb.bmj.com and if you have any comments, suggestions compliments or criticisms please email them to dtbeditor at bmj.com